This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. At this point, we all know how a police officer murdered George Floyd. But there's also Emmanuel Oates, Leonard Shad, Kareem Gaines, Manuel Espina, William Green, Tyrone West, Christopher Brown, Eric Sopp, Gary Hopkins, Robert White, Anton Black, Winfield Carlton Fisher III, Freddie Gray. These are just a few of the Marylanders who have been killed by police. Honestly, I could do a whole 30-minute episode just naming all of the people who have been killed by police in Maryland. It's a disgrace. And it's unacceptable. Maryland and our country have been devastated by hundreds of people, many of them unarmed, killed at the hands of police officers. Excessive force by the police is particularly disturbing given the disproportionate impact on Black people and people with disabilities. But with each of these tragedies, there are very important lessons that we must learn. Ways in which the police can prevent more police killings. Ways that community police relations can be improved. And ways that we can make our communities safer. Because we want a Maryland where no community, especially the Black community, has to live in fear of the police where excessive and lethal force by law enforcement are last resorts and not first options. Today we'll be joined by Tracy Shand, Leonard Shand's sister, and Shamea Manriquez, Emmanuel Oates' sister, to share their experiences about how the killings of their brothers by police could have been prevented by the police department. We will also talk to Jay Jimenez, our legal program associates, about some of the trends we have been seeing in police killings and important recommendations for police that would reduce the unnecessary and tragic killings and how to hold police officers accountable. Well, Tracy, Shamea, Jay, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely. We really are happy to have you on for this really important conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having us in for letting us have this really, really important discussion. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you, same here. So Jay, you work in our legal program. Can you talk to us a bit about what you've been hearing about police killings in Maryland? I've been at the ACLU of Maryland in the legal department for about three years now. And I review a lot of the intake that comes in along with my colleague, Gina. And a large number of our intakes have to do with some kind of police misconduct. Families have been coming to us about their loved ones being killed by police officers here in Maryland. And the ACLU of Maryland actually had a report on it back in 2015. But um, since I've been here, the main themes that I've seen in these fatal police encounters is one, the victims are usually black people or people of color. Two, many times, but not always, but many times the victims who were killed by police were suffering from some sort of mental health trauma 
or were in some sort of incapacitated mental state when they were killed. And there could have been another way to avoid the encounter becoming fatal. And three, the families of police victims suffer from a different kind of institutional failure that other victims don't typically experience. And this presents itself in many different ways. After the death of their loved ones, the immediate families of people killed by the police have almost no access to any police records regarding the death of their loved ones or the investigation. In fact, most of the time that I've seen, they have no access at all. It's basically a shroud of secrecy that adds even more pain to what the families are already experiencing from the loss of, of their loved one. And, and then you add that their loved ones are immediately villainized by the police department to the media. Basically, the police are quick to get their narrative out there that works to justify the killing of that person by criminalizing the victim. And unfortunately, what we've seen is the media usually eats this up as the truth and does nothing to challenge or counter the one-sided police narrative. The main thing that has stood out to me has been that all of these deaths have been avoidable and all the victims can still be alive today if the police use other tactics or maybe even followed protocol that, that's already written or maybe if police departments had use of force policies that reflect the a greater respect for the communities that they serve and don't, doesn't just reflect the militant us versus them culture that's so prevalent in, in our police departments today. And based on the last report from the governor's office of crime control and prevention, which was the report on 2018 numbers, 14 people were shot and killed by the police. Of those 14 people who were shot, nine of them were black compared to three who were white. And um, we know that black people make up about 30% of the Maryland population. So the numbers show a clear disparity on folks who are impacted by police violence and these police killings is disproportionately black folks and people of color. In 2018, Baltimore County led in, in those fatal shootings with Baltimore PD and PG County closely behind. We know for a fact that these shootings aren't just limited to Baltimore or PG. We've seen people, Abraham Arellano was killed by Frederick um, up in Western Maryland. Anton Black was killed by by police in Caroline County, closer to the Eastern Shore. So this is definitely a statewide issue. There's a lot of counties that, that are touched by these police killings. Prior to 2015, Maryland police agencies weren't even required to report when people were killed by police officers. Here at the ACLU of Maryland, we actually released a report that found 109 people were killed by police officers from 2010 to 2014 in Maryland and departments never had to report this data, despite the severity of, of, of these events. And it wasn't until advocates and family members of victims started pushing for legislation that required police to report this data, that it finally became mandatory for police departments to report every time they killed someone back in 2015. So we're, we're still pushing for that transparency and accountability in our police departments, and it's still an ongoing battle. So Jay, what are some of the common themes you've been seeing around police killings in Maryland? Well, the main thing that I've seen when, when investigating all of these police killings myself is that they were all avoidable and police had other options on how to handle these situations before they became fatal. De-escalation is really, really critical when it comes to police reform, but it's not widely used or truly implemented in, in our police departments here in Maryland. PG County and Hydesville Police, for example, they, they said that they used de-escalation de methods before they shot and killed Leonard Shand, 
but the methods that they were talking about involved shooting him with a beanbag and throwing a flashbang grenade at him, which once they exploded, it made him react by by running away the, from the flashbang and towards the police, which um, made the police officers shoot at him because they said that they feared for their lives because he ran towards them. So that is, that's not actual de-escalation that we, we want to see actual de-escalation being implemented and, and other methods to, to handle these situations so they don't turn fatal. No, thank you for that, Jay. You know, I just wanted to talk a bit about like the, the alternatives to public safety that don't involve the police. Well, there, there's all kinds of things that, that community members have already been coming up with, such as training, training community members in these mediation programs to mediate conflicts in, in the community. And these are usually people who already have, you know, some sort of, you know, rank in, in their community. And so their word weighs very, very heavily. That's one thing. Um, another thing is, is having mental health professionals ready to be dispatched on, on for a certain cause that involves someone who may be under the influence or maybe going through some sort of mental health crisis. Uh, these, these are just certain things. I know there, there's been programs in Baltimore, it's called uh, Safe Streets, that that's actually has you know, had a lot of success in reducing violence in, in the city, or at least in, in the neighborhoods where it was, it's been seriously implemented. So those sort of things. And I want to also mention that what we, we, we know what, what communities look like when they're not over-policed. And all we have to do is look at, at the wealthy white communities and here in Maryland or across the United States that are not over-policed or, or who do not have police constantly surveilling them or pulling them over for every little reason. A white person in Bethesda is not gonna get pulled over for a quote-unquote broken taillight and then have eight, nine more police officers pull, or police cruisers pull up behind them and you know harass a person and get like you know start searching their vehicle and ask them about drugs and all kinds of stuff. So instead of of investing in the, in that kind of over policing, they usually tend to invest in in programs that make the community better for for other community members, such as better schools, better access to health resources, those sort of things. And also, there's there's already a lot of communities of color. Um, and black communities that that don't really rely on policing when it comes to keeping themselves safe simply because they don't trust the police and they don't trust the police to not make situations worse once once they're called on and that's that's something that's that's been a reality in a lot of communities for for decades now and even in the immigrant community there's there's immigrant communities in Maryland who don't call the police because they know that you know the of the consequences that may happen if if they do call the police. So there's there's already communities that are not reliant on on police and, and trying to keep themselves safe, and it also just causes um, on the urgency of of needing to rebuild trust between policing and these communities in the first place. So can can you also can you just elaborate on some other ways that the police can prevent um, police killings? Sure. Something else that, that we've been seeing other police departments doing is that they would have mental health experts um, dispatched to the scene of, of places where, where someone might be having um, some sort of mental health breakdown or might be going through some mental health trauma. So instead of police officers who are not really trained or not specialized in training 
to handle situations involving people with mental health disabilities, they get the actual experts out there um, to to de-escalate the situations and and to make sure that the that these situations don't turn violent or fatal. Cahoots is a really really strong program in Oregon where they have kind of like a mobile crisis unit of mental health experts who are dispatched to to these scenes, and they've seen a lot of success. Um, they've they've de-escalated a lot of situations that that unfortunately do turn fatal in states like Maryland. And so that's something that we definitely want to see. Um, those those um, mobile crisis units need to be well-funded as well for them to be able to, to respond to a lot of these situations. And so um, I think working with mental health experts and allowing them to, to come to these scenes would be very, very critical and important to reducing fatal police encounters. Jay, in particular for people with mental illnesses, why do you think it's such a problem for, or it's so prevalent that when people with mental illnesses or people in mental distress, when they interact with the police, that the situation often becomes fatal? I think for one, it's, it's just the, the police culture that is deeply ingrained in Maryland police departments today, which is a very us versus them militant mentality that's grounded on fear. And I've spoken to, to a few law enforcement experts who have told me about this and, and um, have said that it, it starts at, in training where actually um, Officer or Captain Perez from PG County said that um, as, as soon as training starts, you're, you're basically, it's basically instilled in you that, that you're dealing with very, very, very dangerous threats in the community rather than you're dealing with people and you're serving the, these people. And when it comes to people with, with, with mental health problems or going through some sort of, of breakdown, there just isn't really that training yet to, to de-escalate those situations peacefully and with that respect um, for, for all human life. Because right now, the way that police training goes, it's very grounded on fear and it's basically only about the police officer coming home, but, but not about everyone coming home safely. And so um, they're, they're, the training needs to change. Um, there, there needs to be not just de-escalation training, but de-escalation implementation where you see the training taken seriously. You see it taken seriously by, by the higher ups in the police department and they're serious about implementing it on the streets instead of just sitting through a classroom and just saying, oh, you know, we, we just have to sit through this because another incident happened. And Jay, you had mentioned uh, retired Captain Perez but can you also talk about whether officers of color or you know, officers in general have been, you know, talking to us about these many police killings? Um, what do you what have you been hearing about their concerns? Sure. So they they do definitely share my con- my concerns, and it was really validating to hear from them because when when I was looking through a, a lot of these police killings, I just thought that you know these this doesn't there has to be a different way. And so I wanted to hear from law enforcement experts to see if, if, if they feel the same way. And so, um, like I mentioned before, I spoke to Captain Perez. Um, I also spoke to, to Neil Franklin, who used to be a Maryland State police officer. Um, and then he was a Baltimore police officer. I believe he was in charge of training for about four years. And he shares the same concern about the culture that's instilled in, in our police officers today, where, where it's basically, they, they really are mostly concerned about themselves coming home because they, they see the community as, as such a threat and, and is hyper-militarized and very fear-based. 
and instead of seeing it as as the community that you serve and what franklin also mentioned to me was that <clears throat> i guess in um in europe for example they they don't have that same mentality and they're they're able to de-escalate de situations because they they have the training they have the confidence to go into these situations um and, and knowing that they're able to de-escalate without the use of violence and that's just something that we don't see in the United States and it's not something that we're seeing in Maryland. And they basically share a lot of the same concerns about, about the police culture and, and the training and the, the lack of actual de-escalation training. I would say actually that Neil Franklin was mentioning how there are a lot of policies in place to avoid police encounters becoming fatal, but they're just not really used. For example, if, if there's a person armed with a gun then a lot of police departments will train their officers to to take cover and shout or or yell commands at, at the person from from a safe distance or behind that cover so they're not putting themselves in danger but instead we see officers who don't do that and they they don't take cover and 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 they're not keeping themselves like a safe distance for example and then as soon as something happens like maybe the person does like a jerk movement then they, they then they shoot but um it would have not happened if that police officer would have just followed their own written policies that are put in place to to make sure that that these um, situations don't become fatal. So Tracy, I wanted to start off with you. You are the sister of Leonard Shad. I wanted just to start off the conversation because I, I often feel like when we talk about police killings, there's not enough that's really focused on the person um, who lost their life and who that person is. So can you tell us a bit about about your brother and what you love the most about him? Originally, my brother is um, from um, Jamaica. That's where my family is from. For him, he came here when he was younger. He grew up here. He went to he went to school here. Um, as an adult, you know, he had a lot of trials and tribulations. But at the ending, like you know, he tried to go into photography. He was um, a construction worker, so he helped people build their houses. Like, he always helped people in need. Like, there was this lady that came to the funeral, which we had no idea who she was. And she was like, she saw on the news what happened to my brother. And she was like, he rented a room for me and none of my family members will come over. And, and he always would come and fix me breakfast and take care of me. He was such a nice young fella. And I was like, you know, and I didn't know that he was renting a room from her and he used to stay at her house and take care of her and stuff like that. And, you know, he was strong will, which all of us are. We're very strong will people. We're very ambitious. So we're always striving to do better. So even when we accomplish a goal, Steve was a person um, that he'll say, okay, I know how to do photography now. So now let me see if I can, you know, go to do wedding parties because I already do pictures at the clubs. He's always thinking of new ideas to create his brand and to be better than what he was. And he's always reading and studying up on things until he got deep into politics and just started speaking out against, you know, the brutality that um, was being done to people in the area. So back when he used to speak on it, we used to listen to him and say, okay, but you know, what do you want us to do? We wasn't really involved, like how I'm involved now because he got killed. And I didn't realize how important it was until I saw what he was saying happening to him. And then that's when it took an effect on me and said, no, that's not right. And that's why he was fighting for people's rights. 
and and he didn't know i guess he didn't know that there were other organizations out there fighting so he wasn't connected and he thought he was he often thought he was the only one that saw the um the brutality that the government and everybody placed upon the citizens how they abuse us mentally physically he saw that and was trying to you know let everybody else say wake up we got to stop this and then it was too late but can you tell me you know within your own words uh what happened to your brother um basically i'm sorry no um don't apologize take your time basically what happened was My brother was abused when he was younger, when um, he was incarcerated and he was, he was abused then, physically abused and raped and beaten while he was incarcerated and nothing was done. As the years went by and he was released, my brother tried his best. He never got in trouble. He always tried to work hard and just stay out of trouble, stay away from the police and everything. In 2018, an officer um, approached him and he didn't do nothing wrong. And the officer approached him and stabbed him and then said that, that it was the other way around and it was not true. My brother was defending himself. When, the poli- when they found out that it was true that the officer did attack my brother with no reasoning, they ended up dropping the charges on my brother that they filed and then when my brother said, you need to charge him and take him off of the police force, this is in New Carrollton, they refused to do so. That officer still has his job. So when it came to this case here in September, the police claim is that he was supposedly on a Monday assaulted someone that worked at a Starbucks. So they came on Thursday because someone called and said it was him. Our brother was talking to someone at that time, minding his business. And as they approached him, he was like, what are you talking about? You know, he didn't know what they were talking about. He thought they was coming at him again from 2018 because he was fighting to file charges against that officer. So as they kept attacking him, um, he kept walking through the streets. As people saw in the video, he kept walking through the streets telling them telling the community or people that were driving by or anybody that will listen that they're trying to kill him. And he lifted up his shirt and he showed the stab wounds that the officer did to him in 2018. And he kept saying, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. And he, they claimed, they, they stated that they, he did that for about 90% of the time. He was there stating that they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. They tried it last year. This is what happened. This is the officer that did this to me last year. And they're trying to finish me off now. And it took them 30 minutes. And they never called the crisis center. They, they, they claimed that they tried to use de-escalation by the, um, the tasers that never actually touched him, you know, and all of that before they finally killed him. To me, it was murder. It was like they knew what they were doing. And when you ask them why wasn't a crisis center called out, they say, because we don't want to put anybody else's life in danger. (laughs) That's their job. If someone's having a mental breakdown and they're terrified of you, it's the crisis center job to get them calm so you can get them into custody. Why didn't you use what you had 
you decide to take another route. And that's what they did. And that's why my brother's dead today because they decided to take it on their own hands to deal with the problem themselves. I wish that they, I wish that they called the crisis center. I wish that they, within that 30, that 28 minutes or how many minutes they used to attack him, I wish that they had took, the, took it upon themselves to call a family member. You know, we could have de-escalated it. He was terrified. And he knew, he said, they're going to kill me. I know the next time we buck head, they're going to try and kill me. He knew it. So if they had de-escalated it by calling the crisis center, calling a family member, backing off and getting someone out of suit to try to approach him, to calm him down, it would have, I believe personally, it would have turned out different. You can't send dogs in to attack a human being the human being is going to, you know, be scared of the dog. You get me? You can't do that. Especially if it's, if it's Kojo, you sending Kojo to say, Oh, Kojo, go rescue this person. No, that person is going to be like, no, that's Kojo. He's going to kill me. That's how I, that's how I see the police, like, like loose animals that feel that they have a badge. So, and not all of them, don't get me wrong. It's not all police officers. It's just those ones that feel like their badge make them, make them better or make them superior to everyone else. And they have to learn that they are not superior. They have their badge to protect the people in the community. That means that if someone is committing a crime against the laws of the United States, then you are there to say, no, you can't do that. So now you have to go through due process to make sure that you know, um, you're being punished for that crime you commit. You can't go out there and think that you're judge and jury. You can't do that. You know what I'm saying? And then when it, and then when it issued the death penalty, and that's what those officers did it to way how I see it. When you look at the details of everything that happened, and it doesn't just go on the officers. A lot of us are beating up on the officers, but it also goes on the chief of police. It also goes on the um the the mayor, the governor, the senator. It goes all the way up to the top. You mentioned you know, the police and the police departments are held are need to be held accountable, um, and the police chiefs also need to be held accountable for this. But can you talk to me about how you feel about how the media portrayed your brother? The police have their narrative, yes, but I think the, the you know how the media reports on it also plays a role into how things are seen. When the police chiefs, um, Skowinski and um, Chief Amal uh, um, Amal. I apologize if I say the um, name wrong. The best way for me to explain is they mix truth with lies. You understand? So they spoke on, you know, how he kept walking away from the officers and he kept walking away. But then they they went into speaking on um, how he lunged at an officer and they had to protect their own. And that was so not true. They lied. And that, you know, he had, um, um, he was... Uh, mentally unstable. Well, yeah, he ha he'll, he'll obviously be scared of you and have probably, um, what is it, PTSD to where it's like anytime officers come around and approach him for no reason, he's scared that you're going to stab him again, if not shoot him, which you did. And you knew all of that. And then you tried to defend it for what? 
for um, Chief Sawinski and his family or whatever cover-up that they're trying to do to say, oh, well, we're doing our best for the community. How are you doing your best for the community? And more people are dying and being abused by the police every day. And no justice is, there shouldn't be a time when police do something wrong within, within their time of duty that they're not punished for it. I mean, if you're gonna tell it, tell it right. And if you're gonna speak on something, speak the truth. But don't lie, because what's hidden in the dark will come to light. And then it'll be people in the community like me that's going to say, I don't trust you. I, how am I supposed to trust you when you lie to me? When you're not gods. You're human beings. People make mistakes. We can understand a mistake, but we cannot understand a mistake when you lie about it, because that's when, it, that's when that mistake turns to intent. So I wanted to also ask you, you know, do you have words or messages for the police officers who killed your brother or also, you know, the police department itself? Well, Skowinski and his family and also Chief Ahmad Awad, y'all need to do your jobs. Y'all need to do the right thing. And if you don't know what the right thing is, go back and look up within the laws what the right things are. And if that still doesn't clarify for you, then go into um, Potomac and do the same thing to those people that live in Potomac and see how the result is going to end up then. Because I'm sure it's going to be different. I can promise you that. When it comes to the officers, all I can say, I don't know you guys. I don't know your inner thoughts. I don't know, you know, how you function in life. You know, I can't judge you because I don't know you. However, what you did was definitely wrong. And y'all need to own up to it. If you make a mistake and say, well, you know, we, we acted harshly, you know, we was wrong and whatever, then own up to it. If you was working a nine to five everyday job and you go out there and assault somebody on a job, you'll be fired. They're not going to tolerate it. Own up to it. This is not the end of your life. You know, you can move on. There's other careers out there. But maybe being a police officer is just not for you. So, you know, this was a mistake and, you know, just own up to it. I can respect you better if you do that. But the more they sit back and not own up to the mistakes that they make and make it seem like it was justified, that's the more that I'm going to always think that you did it intentionally. You had an agenda and you was out there to accomplish that agenda, whether that's the case or not, because you have your narrative and I have mine because I'm going by what you show me. Action speaks louder than words. What would, what would accountability or what would justice look like um, in your brother's killing? And also, what, what would that mean for you? Well, justice would look like if Chief Awad is replaced, Ahmad Awad is replaced, Chief Skowinski and his family members go have several seats and they are replaced. Um, um, Police officers that has committed a crime, meaning abused, killed, assaulted, any person within the um within the community, they either one or two things, depending on the situation, because you have to go by the situation, they are either placed back through training. But if it's a situation like my brother, they need to be terminated. You need to find another occupation if you can not control your trigger finger. If your automatic response is to shoot, then that's a problem. Because that should not be your response. We are not in, at war. We're not fighting you. 
So your response should not be to kill us. It should be to protect us by any means necessary. Laws need to be changed in every single county, district, state within the United States when it comes to police officers going into black communities. There's a problem and it's a racial problem. And I thought all them years of protesting, of losing lives, you know, important lives like Martin Luther King, Marvin, uh, Marvin Garvey, Malcolm X, or even people that we don't even know, or, you know, the Green family or the Blake family or whoever family, when you come to hurting us, we, we get into a defense to where we can't trust you. Thank you, Tracy, for sharing your experiences with us and talking to us about who Leonard was. He was lucky to have a sister like you. And now we'll talk to Shamia Manriquez, Emmanuel Ota's sister. Hi, Shamia. Thanks for being on Thinking Freely. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off by you, you just talking a little bit about what you loved about your brother. Okay, so my brother's name was Emmanuel David Joshua Oates, and I remember very clear uh, when he came home from the, the hospital, and he and I, we've, we've been re really close ever since, um, and I've always kind of felt like I had to, to protect him. Um, so the thing that I loved about my brother is that he was really, really a, a deep thinker, and he thought very differently about life. Um, one of the fondest memories that I have of him is um, one time we were talking and he told me that he heard angels singing. And um, I told him, I was like, really? What, what did it sound like? And um, he had a, a really big sense of humor. And so he told me, he's like, you wouldn't even understand. He's like, it's in a different language. And so I, I said, just, just go ahead and try, you know? Um, and he said, if I, was to, if I was to try to tell you what it sounds like, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. I was like, really? You know, and we just laughed that one off. But he and I, we used to have a lot of like deep conversations and um, he would always tell me things, even though um, I was like six years older than him. Um, he would always tell me things to encourage me or just um, make me think deeper about life. Like, for example, um, he, he had a lot of trauma in his life, a lot of trauma that... It, it, it probably couldn't even be summed into words how much pain and devastation that he had to walk through. Um, as, us as a family, it's, it's entirely, we, we suffered a lot. Um, but Emmanuel in particular, um, he couldn't seem to recover from the pain and devastation that he's encountered. Um, and so he had a lot of trauma and it caused him to basically uh, suffer from mental illness. He, uh, before he was killed, he was homeless. He was about 24 at the time. And he and I would talk all the time and I, and I told him, I was like, look, why don't you just get yourself together? You know, I would keep trying to tell him, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And finally he told me, he said, look, I don't want to be told what I need to do. He said, I just want to be loved where I'm at. And so from that day forward, I just decided that I wasn't going to tell him what to do. And I was just going to love him where he was at and try to help him the best way that I could. But one day, which was the last time we talked, was on Valentine's Day of last year. That was the last time any of the family had talked to him. 
and um, he cried to me and he told me, he said, Shemaya, I'm tired. You know, he, and so I just tried to encourage him and, you know, I was telling him that God had purpose for his life and because we, we're, we're believers, we were raised in church. And so I was just really trying to say whatever I could to really encourage him. And normally when I talk to him, he, re- he really doesn't listen. And I could tell that that mental illness was in effect, like he would just say, yeah, yeah. But that day that I last spoke to him, he finally, I felt like I was getting through to him. And he said, yeah, he, he kept saying, this is God. Every time I would say something, and I'm like, oh, finally, I'm getting through to him, you know? And so he's, you know, he calmed down and I told him, I was like, Hey, I'm, um, maybe you can talk to your dad and we can try to get you a ticket to come out to California so he can get out of the situation that he was in. And I told him, I said, why don't you just apologize to your dad? Cause they had fell out and they were at odds with each other. And so he apologized to his dad, but he never asked him for a ticket. And, and then we hung up in that. That was the last time I talked to him. So the day that the situation happened, it was, it was like record cold. It was like the coldest winter, one of the coldest winters ever. So he went to the Dollar Tree and I guess he went to uh, get something to eat um, with whatever he had left. And uh, I, I was told that he had like a can of soup or something like that. People were familiar with him in the area. People respected him because he was a, a good person. And he never caused any trouble. But the area that he was sleeping in, there was a police department right across the street. And so they were always watching him. They were always following him. And they were kind of on his heels. And so they kind of knew his whereabouts. And that day, for whatever reason... There was an employee, an employee at the Dollar Tree that accused him of shoplifting. Mind you, I was not there that day. I'm all the way in California, but I was able to watch the footage. And I saw that they were harassing him. And they just, they just kept following him. And he, and he said, and I heard him on the footage, he said, I have my receipt right here. He had bags in his hands. He said, you're not going to keep following me. I mean, mind you, he went all the way up a hill in Reisterstown. It was at the Reisterstown Plaza in Baltimore. And they followed him, including the employee, followed him up the hill across the street at the bus stop. And they kept saying and accusing him of shoplifting and just following him. And he's like, I have my receipt. He was trying to show the receipt. And then he said, he spoke a scripture and he said, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. You're not going to keep me and before you know it there's an officer that came and charged at him and tackled him to the ground for no reason no reason at all and he felt threatened my brother had a knife on him he had a machete on him so once as he was being tackled he pulled out the machete because he he was trying to defend himself and he had that machete because he was homeless and he was on the street he had that for his own protection and so when that happened, he immediately reacted because he was tired. Once he did that, I don't believe he struck the officer. He pulled it out and swung it. And, and I don't believe that he actually struck the officer, but he got up and he just, I could tell that he just was just, it was like he was just lost. He kind of like walked down, back down the hill into the Ricerstown Plaza. They followed him. 
and they cornered him into the um, Aldi's. And then again, he said, the scripture, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And soon as he said that, mind you, he, he wasn't swinging it at anybody at that moment. But once he said that scripture, they just shot at him and he curled over and that was it. After they did that, they immediately tried to clean up. They're wiping stuff. They're being aggressive. It was like about maybe like six of them. They're stepping on his body. I was so confused and I was so hurt because the state's attorney, as she's walking us through this footage, the part when they're stepping on his body, she says, so this is the part when they render him aid. And I'm like, Where, where's the aid? Uh, I, see, I see some sort of vendetta. They had no intentions of preserving his life. They had no intentions. It was like they provoked him. They antagonized him because they wanted him to re re react or retaliate so they can find an excuse to kill him. And he was another body on their list. Can you talk to me about, you know, what would you wish the police had done differently in that situ in, in situation? I wish that the police, I just wish that they would have preserved in his life because they shot at him multiple times. And so I just wish he preserved his life. I thought he had a future, you know, like there were so many things that he and I talked about that he really wanted to do and that he was only 24. You know, he never got a chance to have a baby or, you know, have, get married and have a family. And it's just, it's so disappointing. So disappointing because I feel like his life was cut off short. Do you have any words for the police officers who killed your brother or, um, or anyone else connected with, with the killing? I believe I can speak on behalf of my entire family that we deserve a public apology because it was like they killed him, they murdered him, they stepped on his body, and then it was like, oh, well, he shouldn't have reacted. So case closed, and then that was it. And then everybody moved on with their lives, and now it's been a year later, and nothing was done. Nothing was done. And so I believe at minimum we deserve a public apology and also some sort of financial compensation for the pain of the loss. Because although my brother had a weapon, he was trying to defend his, himself and protect himself because he felt threatened by the police. That's what I would want. My family would want. We were already suffering before this happened, and it was just another weight, another pain. I want them to understand how painful it is to lose a loved one. Just because he was homeless does not mean nobody cared about him or nobody loved him or that he deserved his life to be taken so soon. And I'm not going to stop until something else is done about it. Can you talk to us about, you know, why there really needs to be accountability for your brother and what would justice look like for you? I believe there has to be accountability because there's too many, too many cases of Black men who are, who are young Black men alone, in addition to Black alone going through injust, um, injustice with, the, with law enforcement. But there's um, injustice, black men that are being killed. And 
because there is no accountability, they feel like they can continue to do this to us. They feel like they can continue to cover their tracks. They can continue to be justified. And, and if there is no accountability, then this will continue to go on. If there is accountability, then I believe they will think twice about murdering our innocent young black men. And for me, justice, that will be justice, is for them to be accountable, for things to change. They need to dig deeper into the policy. They need to change the policy. If into the policy, like these things are in the policy, they need to start implementing, they need to start actually, you know, using um, the training that they have had, but then also in addition to the training that they have, I think they need to, to, to be taught um, some sort of humanity training to where they got to understand that us as black people were, we are humans too. Yeah. We may not speak like they do, but that doesn't mean just because we're different that we are a threat. That cannot be an excuse. Every time I heard, uh, the, the officer that was over the police department on the news in regards to the case of my brother, he said, we couldn't just shoot him, we, you know, anywhere else. We had to shoot to eliminate the threat. But why, why, why shoot to eliminate the person? Why not shoot to eliminate the threat versus the actual human being? Their life matters. Black lives do matter. And that's the whole point of why we say that. You know, people get offended and they say, oh, all lives matter. The reason why we're saying Black Lives Matter is because clearly you people feel like we are not as valuable or that we're expendable. I would like for my brother's story to be told. And I would like to change the narrative that was told by the media, like myself and, and my family. We, we didn't really get a chance to say anything. There wasn't like a candlelight visual or anything because we all live in different states and we were, we were already suffering with our own things. You know, the black community, we, we were always fighting through the systematic oppression. So then when you do something like that, it's hard to fight. So I would like as much support as, as we can to do something on behalf of his life so that we can create some sort of legacy. Yeah. Um, I want the public to know that these police killings, they're preventable. And there is another way of policing that can be community centered, that truly values the lives of all people and recognizes that every life is sacred. Everyone should have the right to have their lives protected. And this is going to require a lot of true changes and it will take time. Um, but it is really important because we're talking about lives here again. It will require changes to on how police train and what culture and values we want to instill in, in, in our new officers. There has to be transparency and accountability. The places where we see the most positive changes are departments that are becoming more and more truly accountable to their citizens. There's, there's other ways to make policing safer through accountability measures. This can include citizens being on police boards and having actual power. 
This means um, actual independent investigations when it comes to investigating police killings or others, other police misconduct. It needs to be a truly independent body that does these investigations. In New Jersey, for example, the Attorney General's office conducts these investigations, and that can certainly be an option here. We also really, really, really need disciplinary records of officers to be made public. The bad officers are always repeat offenders, and the things that they do almost always stay in the dark. And that's why they're able to continue doing the bad things that they do. And as of right now, the law enforcement bill, bill of right doesn't allow for people who file an internal affairs complaint on an officer to even have access to that record. So there really is no true way to hold police accountable um, since the public doesn't have access to this information. And I could use some examples. I'll add that PG County police officer, Michael Owens, who shot a black man named William Green while he was handcuffed in, in the police cruiser, he had a history. A woman filed a complaint against him for choking her while handcuffed in, in the cruiser as well. He also killed another black man in PG County named Rodney Edwards back in 2011. Um, Greensboro police officer, Thomas Webster, the officer who was involved in the killing of 19 year old Anton Black. Before he came to Greensboro, he was caught on camera kicking a defenseless man in the face, which broke his jaw and resulted in, in the city of Dover, Delaware, where he was policing at the time, banning him from seeking employment there ever again. But yet Greensboro police hired him um, to, to police in their community. And that's definitely something that the community who's going to be policed by this person, they should be in the know about that. Policing is not going to change until we have that transparency and until we have that actual accountability. And that's what we need here in Maryland. When the person is white um, and they have committed some type of, you know, a, a terrible atrocity like a Dylan Roof or they've done some type of mass shooting, the police have often been able to apprehend them, arrest them, and nobody, you know, unnecessarily dies. But if you, a person is black um, or they've had a reported um, mental distress, then all of a sudden the, the fear goes into police officers or, or at least the reported fear. And then they say, oh, I fear for my life and therefore it was justified to be able to, um, and I, I, I say justified with quotations in it, um, to, to be able to take this person's life. Can I get your reactions to that and why you think that is? For me, um, it all goes into the training. If you, if an officer goes to Potomac and they have an issue, they tend to deal with things differently because that's more so an upper end white community. So they'll deal with it differently than if they was to go into um, PG County or in Hydesville um, into those cities because it's a black community. Their whole mindset is different because of their training. So, you know, when you're trained a certain way to say that these people are dangerous, these people don't have any control, these people are like animals, you know, they don't, they don't know how to um, communicate. So we have to go in on defense because these people, you know, will hurt us, then you're going to go in on guard. So at the end of the day, um, that's why they respond differently than when they go into another neighborhood 
and they feel that, oh, well, you know, maybe this person is just having a, 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 um, a mental breakdown or, you know, probably to talk them through it, you know, put them through a little bit of therapy. They don't think that same way for the Black community. And it's shown through history. This is not something that just started. This is history that we're going on, where it's constant, where um, the Black community has always been the hostile community. Um, so I, I really appreciate you bringing up Dylan Roof and the differences in how police react to certain situations based on race and based on who they consider to be dangerous. For those who don't know, Dylan Roof was the white man who shot and killed several Black people inside of a Black church in South Carolina. Now, we don't need to go to South Carolina to see disparities in policing. Um, they happen here in Maryland, too. Robert White was a man in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is Montgomery County, black man who was stopped by a police officer for having a rip on his jacket. Imagine that happening to a white person. Now, Robert White ended up getting shot and killed by this police officer, even though he was unarmed and even though, yeah, um, why he was stopped in the first place. Yet just this year, a 40-year-old white man shot nearly 200 rounds at Hartford County Sheriff's de deputies, 200 rounds. And the deputies ended up apprehending him without firing one shot back. So there's absolutely no reason why black men like Robert White, who was unarmed, or black men like Emmanuel Oldson, Leonard Shand, there's no reason for them to be shot several times and for their killings to be said to be justified when a white man in Maryland can shoot 200 rounds at officers and still be safely apprehended with police not returning not even one shot. That's the kind of policing that we want to see for all people in Maryland, um, all people in general, including Black folks, including people of color, and, and including people with mental health disabilities. And I, I love what you just said. I'm glad that you brought that up because that is something to, to think about. It's like, how is it that they're able to apprehend this guy without no shooting, and yet he had a gun? And then you have all these other cases of Black men who you know, they may not even have any weapons on them and they're still being killed. So it, it, it's, it says a lot. It says a lot. And hopefully when we think about those cases that maybe it'll cause some sort of change to the whole Dylan Roof situation. It's, it's just ironic how, like, they actually took him to Burger King. And going back to what you were saying about the, the threat and how they... They try to say that they're so fearful of us, but then it's like, why? It's so clear and evident that they usually try to preserve the lives of the white men, or, or for example, like the mass, the white uh, mass shooters. They tend to like preserve their life or like try to find ways to de-escalate those situations, but they don't, they don't, they don't even try to attempt to do that in within our community because. Unfortunately, they don't see our lives as valuable and they don't they don't view us the same. So, you know, automatically they, they want to believe that we're a threat because they want an excuse to justify the killing. You know, I feel like they're not here to protect and serve me. I, I don't feel safe around them, unfortunately. And so a lot of times, like, I'm actually afraid to call the police I'm like, what if they somehow find an excuse to kill me? Basically, the community needs to know that the officers that's out here, not all of them can be trusted because I don't want to put the good with the bad. So I will tell the community, don't trust them. 
So when you call the police, and if you're living in a black community, or even if you call the police and you're living in a white community, but you are Latino or you are black, you got to call them with caution because you don't know what they're going to say, how they're going to spin it, or what they're going to do when they're supposed to come and protect you. And another thing that the community needs to do is to stick together. There's too many people out there have this idea in their head that, well, if this wasn't done, then it wouldn't have happened that way. It's not necessarily that's the case. Things are not always black and white. A lot of times there's gray in there. So wake up and smell the coffee and be united and be loyal to one another. They can't defeat us all. My next question is for uh, Shamaya and Tracy. What would you like other families um, you know, who've gone through similar things uh, as yourselves like to, to know about, about this? About, or, or like, you know, what do you want either the public to know, to know about families who have gone through this or other families who have gone through this? I would want anyone who um, probably recently experienced this to allow yourself to, to, to grieve. Don't feel so pressured to have to jump into the fight because it's already overwhelming as it, as it is to have to um, handle and manage the weight of the, the pain of grief. It, it's like you got to find a balance because it's like, okay, this happened. Now I got to get up and fight. When you already feeling like you just got a harsh blow to your stomach, you know, how do you fight when you feel pain? So I think it's important to like really allow yourself to heal properly and properly meaning allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to just feel how you need to feel. And then when you mustered all the energy that you can by the strength of God, then you fight. For people to, to be supportive of that person and not think that they should um, be healed when they think they should be healed or like they should get over it or something. Because that's another thing about grief. It's like people, for some reason, who don't understand, they think, oh, you should be over it, whether it's a year, 10 years. Like you get over it when you need to. And you fight when you can. So just allow yourself to just pace yourself and, and hopefully people around you will support you because you need all the support you can get. With that being said, the only thing I would say that um, for those people that's been affected by a situation like this, um, yes, take the time out to you know get yourself together, but don't ever, and I, and I strongly ask of this, don't ever think that, oh, well, this is going to end. This fight will be over one day. It's never going to be over until everybody is protected outside of you. You understand? So you got to keep fighting. You got to keep protesting. You got to keep your, your loved ones that was murdered, killed, abused. You got to keep their name alive and you got to let them know it will not be tolerated. So we got to keep um, screaming out and we got to um, somehow figure out how to make a change and don't ever think that you're by yourself. There's other people out there that's in the same situation as you that's going through it with you. So just find that one, you know, um, little small pack that says, hey, you know, we're going to keep up this fight as long as it takes to get the, the laws changed or to get justice for our people or, or for our community 
you know, and if you feel comfortable with that, with that certain group of people, then join them in their fight. We have to, you know, stick together and, you know, figure out who we're going to put into office, who we're going to make the changes for when it comes to law, who is not supposed to be reelected again. And that it all starts there. It's changing our legal process. It starts there and then we can travel our way down. I just wanted to add uh, one more thing to that. We can also allow um, the pain to serve as motivation to us. Like, you know, when we get done crying, then channel that energy and really direct it into into the work and and trying to get justice. Because the pain can actually really be purposeful, too. And it can be motivation. I just wanted to say um, to Jay, to Shamia, to Tracy, thank you so much for coming on this this program, for you know being brave enough to really share and vulnerable enough to share your stories um, and to talk about your um, uh, Shamia and and, uh, and Tracy to talk about your brothers. Um, and you know, I'm I. What happened to them were tragedies. But I'm hoping that, you know, from this type of conversations, from forming that unity that you were talking about earlier, Tracy, um, that, that their, their lives are not going to be there. I'm hoping that this will, this, this trend will start to wane. Um, Cause uh, right now it's, it's just not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Thank, thank you too for, for being here and sharing your stories there really, really powerful stories. And both of you are very, very powerful yourselves. And I'm um, thinking, I can't be any more grateful for you all to, to give us your time and to, and to share these stories and let people know why this is really, really important. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, thank you, no problem. Everybody, thank you guys. So Jay, thank you so, so much for uh, joining us again for this conversation. I will say that we had previously recorded this conversation, but that was prior to the murder of George Floyd and the unprecedented protests for police reform and accountability in this country. But I wanted to also talk about not just the, the murder of George Floyd, but really the the policy changes um, and some of the demands that many activists are reaching up and and shouting and demanding um, from local officials so that we can provide more context to what's going on. So one of the most popular uh, demands that activists have been asking for is defunding the police. Can you just tell us a bit about what that means and also give us some context for how we can conceptualize that? When we talk about defunding, I first want to start off by saying that cities in the United States spend about $115 billion per year on policing. That's way higher than any other country in the world. And that, that's actually a lot higher than a lot of military budgets around the world. Yet the U.S. still experiences more gun violence than any other developed country in the world, as we know. So these numbers by themselves are telling us that just throwing more money at policing doesn't necessarily make our community safer. But what is proven to actually reduce crime is reducing property. So what the funding is trying to do is instead of spending these billions of dollars on policing, we need to be reinvesting that money towards institutions that are 
proven to have lasting results in, in um, reducing violence and crimes. And we need to be reinvesting that money in, in the black communities and other communities that have been historically harmed the, the most by, by over-policing and over-incarceration. Investing in things such as great schools, education, employment programs, health services, which includes mental health services and drug rehabilitation, healthy and affordable housing, those, those are just a few things that, that we can reinvest in by taking some of the millions and millions of dollars that we're spending on policing right now, only to, to over-police and, and surveil and harass the Black community um, and, and reinvest that money towards something that's actually useful, that's going to build these communities up and make them safer in the long run. Now, I also want to add that according to the FBI, there were over 10 million total arrests in the United States in 2018. That's the last year where we have those numbers. Of those arrests, only 5% were for violent crimes, 5%. So take that into consideration. Most arrests were made for, for drug abuse violations. Imagine if, if we had crisis response teams, for example, this is just one thing that we can invest in. But imagine if we had crisis response teams made up of highly trained mental health professionals, doctors, nurses, therapists, responding to situations where someone is going through a mental health crisis instead of the police. We don't have to imagine too hard because they already exist and they've already been proven effective, such as the CAHOOTS program in, in Oregon. Because we know that calling 911 on a Black person today, no matter, no matter the reason of the call, no matter how, how minor, it can always result in, in that Black person being killed. And so when we talk about defunding the police, we're talking about reducing policing, unnecessary police encounters and reinvesting that money towards, towards the, the communities themselves, the Black community that's been hurt by, not just by over-policing, but by mass incarceration, by um, all kinds of you know, systemic oppression and beginning to, to repair those things. And also there's, there's already a lot of communities of color um, and black communities that that don't really rely on policing when it comes to keeping themselves safe simply because they don't trust the police and they don't trust the police to not make situations worse once once they're called on and that's that's something that's that's been a reality in a lot of communities for for decades now and Jay, I also wanted to talk a bit about the legal side of police reform. Um, in Maryland, there's a law called the Law Officers Bill of Rights, which gives law enforcement a separate um, set of uh, Bill of Rights that are different from any other public employee um, in the state of Maryland. Can you talk a bit about the legal reform um, work that we would like to see change in the state of Maryland and across the country? Definitely. So I would say that, that I truly believe the number one legal hurdle that stops us from being able to hold police officers, bad police officers accountable for police misconduct or police violence is the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights or the LEOBR. It basically gives police officers who are our public servants, it gives them a, a lot of added privileges when they're accused of a crime that us regular civilians certainly don't have, nor do other, any other public servants. One example is, is when it comes to their disciplinary records. Their disciplinary records are, they're not public. We're not able to have access to them. Very rarely do we have access to, to them. Even if, if me or you, for example, were to get 
pulled over by the police and we believe that it was based on our skin color why we were stopped in the first place and we were harassed or disrespected or even physically assaulted by the police officer. If we file an internal affairs complaint, once we file the internal affairs complaint, because of the protections of, in the law enforcement bill of rights, we would have very, very little access to those records, if any. Um, we, we know a lot of people have come to the ACLU or, or to us talking about how, how they filed internal affairs complaints. And a lot of times they, they don't, they don't, they're not told the outcome of, of the investigation. They're not told about the investigation itself. They're not told whether or not the officer has been disciplined. And so these are things that they, they need to become public if, if we want to truly hold police officers accountable. And as of right now, the law enforcement bill of rights just gives them gives police officers these data protections and we're not able to hold them accountable. So that's why I say that the law enforcement bill of rights is, is the number one legal hurdle in um, holding our officers accountable. Is there any other things um, that you would like the public to know, uh, particularly during this time? It feels like um, a, a largest portion, at least in my lifetime, of America is saying, hey, policing needs to be reformed and changed more and more people are joining in the demands to make that change actually happen. What would you say to the protesters, but also people who are, you know, perhaps sitting, thinking about, you know, what can they do to be supportive of this after protesting has ended, you know, to keep the momentum going and to keep the pressure going? I think the number one thing we need to be doing, at least in Maryland, is, is working in Annapolis and making sure we, we're passing bills that they're going to increase police transparency and, and make us better able to hold police accountable. Like I know there was a bill that we tried to pass in, in Annapolis this last session that would have given police departments the ability to make some police disciplinary records um, public, but that was not able to pass. I'm hoping that now a, a lot more people are seeing the urgency and, and having access to these records and holding police accountable. So those kinds of things. I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be more bills that come up to hold police accountable and to reduce police violence. But yeah, I, I think, in, at least in Maryland, most of the significant change that we see is probably going to come from Annapolis. But it doesn't even take that. If, if you can hold your own local police department accountable, then that, you know, that's, that's very much needed too. And there's a lot of efforts on the ground. For example, Montgomery County, there's the Silver Spring Justice Coalition, who's you know, calling on all kinds of things such as truly independent investigations into police misconduct in Montgomery County. There's um, community justice in PG County who's been, who has a lot of demands as well when it comes to the PG County Police Department. And for bad officers or officers who have a known reputation for, for being Black people and for not being held accountable, for them to finally be held accountable and to lose, the, you know, their jobs because they shouldn't be still able to patrol in, in those neighborhoods that they've been harassing for for several years. So just, get, just getting in touch with the community organizations that have been doing work to hold our local police departments accountable for several years now. And what I always tell people is, is what happened, you know, George Floyd, that, that really, you know, it, it was hurtful to, and it's still hurtful to even talk about what, you know, him being killed on the street like that. But, you know, more than likely the police department near you has done something similar to that or, or other very, very racist and heinous acts that just never seen the, the light of day, maybe because it wasn't recorded on camera. 
And so we need to hold our, our own police departments accountable for for the misconduct that that they've been doing. And there, there's all kinds of police reform that you know that does harm reduction. Things like um, like truly independent police or truly independent investigations into police misconduct. That means like an independent board or somewhere where it's not the police investigating the police or, you know, making disciplinary records public, more access to body cameras, those kind of things. They, it's, it's harm reduction, but it doesn't attack policing and the problems with policing at its core. And that's basically that police departments from the beginning when they were founded as, um, as slave patrols to, cap to capture black slaves who were escaping, you know, the bondage of slavery. That's, that's basically where modern policing has, has stemmed and, and grown out from. And so at its very, very core, policing has always had the sole purpose of, of protecting the power that white people have over black people. We, we, we just need to completely reimagine what policing looks like in the United States because that it, it doesn't have to remain this way. These, we don't have to have all these fatal police encounters and we don't have to have people, black people routinely harassed by the police in Maryland. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, we have truly lost too many Black people, too many people in general, um, to police violence, unnecessary and preventable police violence in this country. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us again for this conversation. Okay, thanks, Amber. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. Visit our website, aclu-md.org. To learn about the five demands we and over 60 organizations are calling for around police reform. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded at my house in Baltimore, Maryland, and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.